So thank you, Kate, for that introduction. Um, I was, as Kate was speaking, I was thinking back to uh, one of the first visits I paid to St. John's after um, I had been a, uh, elected to become a fellow, and it was because my predecessor, Peter Bryant, was kind enough to organise um, a party in, I believe it was in St. Giles' house. And he introduced me to various people, including some of the students that I was about to teach. And I do remember a friend coming up and looking around St. Giles' house and saying, Paul, I envy you. And Peter looked up and said, yes, I envy Paul too. But Peter, of course, was about to move to Wilson to the <coughs> chair of uh, psychology. So I took this to be you know, a slightly puckish remark by Peter. But it's only when I'm standing next to um, my successor that I realise there's some truth to that. Even though you move on from St. John's, you, you somewhat envy your successor. Okay, so... I want to start by setting the scene, in some sense, 300 years ago. If you look at those dates, you'll see that uh, we've been celebrating two tricentennials. Uh, last year, David Hume. This year, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, they knew one another. Um, they corresponded. They crossed swords, or certainly pens, and uh, they eventually fell out. And indeed, they had different views about um, cognitive development. Here's a brief glimpse. So if you look on the left-hand side, you can see Rousseau writing in Emile about the dangers of answering children's questions. What he's emphasising here is the idea that children should be uh, left to their own devices and working, should be encouraged to work things out for themselves. On the other side, you'll see uh, Hume's remark about the role of testimony in human reasoning. Not that um, Hume was uncritical of the role of testimony, but you can see here that he's emphasising how important it is um, for everyday intellectual functioning. So already you can see an opposition between them, with Rousseau expecting and encouraging teaching um, not to hand children information or expertise, and Hume assuming that this is a natural part of humanity. So I'm going to explore the tension between their views in thinking about how young children develop. When I say young children, I, I'm really meaning for children from about 18 months through to five years, through to, the, through to the beginning of school, so to speak. So here's a quick overview. I'll talk initially about the book that uh, Kate mentioned, The Work of the Imagination, in which I studied um, especially pretend play, early pretend play. Then I'll ta talk about um, how that imaginative capacity is connected to the child's understanding of language and makes it possible to um, receive testimony and act upon it. And then a, um, an issue that I find very intriguing, which is the fact that um, children simply ask a lot of questions. Next, I'll try to make some comparative remarks um, by um, talking about some work in which it's a little bit easier to compare chimpanzees with children. And then finally, I'll talk about slightly older children who are beginning to deal with narratives and the extent to which they 
have some sense that the, 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 the world of narratives is not, so to speak, uniform, but needs to be divided up into different genres, particularly historical narratives, as compared to fictional fairy stories. All right, so let's start with pretense. Pretend play starts at around 18 months of age, and this is roughly the point at which children are also beginning to understand language. And in the book, The Work of the Imagination, toward the end of it, I speculated about the the consequences of bringing these two psychological functions together. So on the one hand, you have the child increasingly able to think about a situation that they're not observing, which is imaginary, in which various transformations and causal sequences occur. But at the same time, the child is also beginning to make sense of what people can tell the child, and increasingly what people will tell the child is is displaced, the content is displaced from the particular time of the utterance. In other words, people tell the child about events and episodes that the child may not have witnessed. So my working assumption is that the child, armed as it is with this imaginative capacity, can listen to what it's told and in some sense envisage um, the scenario or the the transformations that are being described. And oftentimes, of course, the child can take those claims to be true. And I'll illustrate that in a moment in a relatively straightforward fashion. But first let's take a look at um, a very simple example of uh, pretend play to show you what I mean. nice to do it again. We we will do it again in a minute. Let me just highlight, though, one or two features of what happened in that episode. It's it's not very complicated, but there's quite a lot going on. So, first of all, the child imagines the movement of this non-existent substance from a small pot into the larger pot, and he's carrying it in the spoon. Then, of course, his father tilts that larger pot, which is now full of this imaginary substance, to the child and says, taste. And the child doesn't say, well, there's nothing in the pot. Of course, the child then engages in a pretend gesture and uh, tastes what's in the pot. And then it's, it's also true, of course, that the child is not only engaging in pretense himself, um, he's also making sense of the father, I assume it's the father, um, his pretend gestures as well, particularly when um, he carries it to his mouth. So just to give you another chance, because it went rather quickly, let's just take another look and try to... Ha, ha, ha. 
I always like it when he says, let's do it again. Okay. So, what that little episode illustrates then is this child's ability to think about something that's not actually taking place, but to use his or her causal knowledge that, you know, if you dip into a substance with a spoon, the substance will remain on the spoon. If you move the spoon, uh, you can transport it to a new container. So we tackled this a little bit more systematically, an experiment in which we had two groups of children. And one of them would watch as the experimenter held a small container and then picked up a carton of milk. I should have brought props with me, but since you've got rich imaginations, assume I've got a carton of milk in here. It's, It's an empty carton of milk, but I pretend pour milk into this container. And now as the child watches, I carry this container and I dump the contents onto a toy horse. Another group of children see me pick up, or see the experimenter pick up, a can of talcum powder and I shake the powder into the container. And then in exactly the same way, these children also see the the, um, container moved and inverted and um, put over the toy horse. Now if you think about it, the second stage of those two episodes um, is identical. The uh, container is moved and inverted and the, <coughs> in the, substance, the imaginary substance inside descends upon the horse. But for the child to fully make sense of what's going on, the child will have to keep in mind the nature of the substance that went into the container. So if we now say to the child, OK, you saw that, what's, so what's happened to the horse? Well, interestingly, these children, they're two-year-olds, give you different answers depending upon whether they saw the milk go in. The horse is wet, milky, got milk on, covered in milk. The other group say the horse is dry, powdery, got powder on him, covered in powder. So what I'm trying to emphasise here is the way in which the child almost catches a narrative in the sense that the first episode feeds into the second episode, which then determines the eventual result. So here we're seeing then children understanding and using their causal knowledge to make sense of pretend play. Now let's think about the connections to language. So one possibility is that children can simply code remarks that um, their parents make, and if you comb through the literature, it looks as if children are, are doing this. So here's a young child, Naomi, asking her mother about the moon, and she gets the f- following um, reply the moon is sleeping, the moon is not out now. Well, a little bit later, um, if you comb through Naomi's remarks, you find the following exchange. The adult now turns to Naomi and says, where's the moon, where is it? And Naomi gives a reply. So you could say Naomi is processing language. But of course, an obvious objection to using this kind of, these kind of data is that Maybe the child is parroting what's being said without fully comprehending it, and indeed it's not clear what it would mean for the child to understand that the moon is sleeping. So what we need is, in some sense, a more straightforward uh, assessment. And one way to look at this is to look at the extent to which the child can listen to what they're told and then change their behaviour, not what they say, but change their behaviour as a result. So we have been doing what we call updating studies where the child observes a certain situation in the world and 
it's typically a, a room, and then the child leaves the room. Then we bring about some change in the room while the child is unable to witness it. When the child comes back, we tell the child what has happened, and then we see if the child behaves accordingly. Do they behave in line with what they last saw to be the case in the room, or do they behave in line with what we have just told them? So just to make this more concrete, we have this space here, and I want you to pay special attention to the bag here and the box here in a moment, because I'm going to show you a film. And what has happened preceding the film is that the child has put a toy animal in the box. And then the child has gone to outer space. And um, this window is very high up. So the child can't actually see through the window, except, if, except when the um, experimenter lifts the child up so that they can see. So sometimes we have the child see what takes place in the room, but sometimes we don't lift the child up and they're only told. So we can compare two conditions, observing a change and receiving testimony about a change. So just to remind you, the child puts a toy animal in the box, retreats to this outer space, and then either watches or only is told about the fact that this object, this toy animal in the box, is actually moved to the bag. So let's see what happens. And we'll watch, first of all, a um, 30-month-old. And um, just to emphasize, sorry, it's swiveled around now, but here's the box in which the toy animal was placed initially by the child. It's been moved in the child's absence. The child didn't see it moved to this bag over here. And the child will be told that the object has been moved, and we'll see what the child does. Well, Extremely straightforward, as you can see. This 30-month-old has absolutely no trouble in hearing that the animal has been moved. She ignores the place where she put it, and she goes over to that bag where she's been told that the animal has been moved to. But now let's look at a younger child, a 23-month-old, and just to draw your attention to one or two changes, to help this younger child, we've got a window in this box... So that when she comes in, not only, not only has she been told that it's moved, but there's an indication that this box is empty. And as you'll see, um, the behaviour of this 23-month-old is uh, different from the, from the, from the 30-month-old. Well, as you saw, she initially, still, despite what she's told, 
goes to look here, and she clearly registers what she's been told at some level, but she's not acting upon it initially. And it's only when she's established for herself, so to speak, that the uh, animal is no longer here, that she recodes and uh, goes off and finds the object. So we've run a variety of studies like this with slightly different arrangements, but they point to the following pattern of results. So if you look at the red bars, first of all, these are the 23-month-olds and these are the 30-month-olds, and these are the conditions in which the children are lifted up so that they can see the change. And you can see that in those circumstances, the 23-month-olds are are as good as the 30-month-olds. They cope with this change and they search in the right place. On the other hand, what we're calling the testimony condition, when the child is only told about the change, you can see that 23-month-olds, like that 23-month-old we just saw, often make this so-called perseverative error. They go back to the place where experience, their last experience with the object, tells them that the object is, but very often they can then correct themselves. But here we're plotting the place where they go at first. By 30 months of age, testimony is, so to speak, as, is as potent as observation. So this is an important trans, transformational period in which the child is increasingly willing to trust what other people tell him or her about the, the world and to act upon it. And here we're going much beyond then mere parroting. The child is really changing their behaviour in consequence of what they're told. Here's a study with slightly older children. These are now 36-month-olds and upwards. And what Vikram Jaswal did was to show the child two different cups. One is red and one is blue. And then he interposes a screen so the child can't see exactly what he does. And he puts a sticker in one of the two cups. And at this point, he does one of two things. Um, He either um, tells the child where the sticker is, or he puts an arrow on the sticker to indicate where to look. But in both of those conditions, whether he tells the child or whether he puts an arrow, he actually misleads the child. So now we're going to see what does the child do when the child is given misleading information. And what he did was to look at the child's reaction, look at where the child searches, and then repeat the process on subsequent trials to see at what point the child loses faith in this testimony, so to speak. And here are the results. So first of all, you can see that at first, none of the children end up finding the sticker. Not surprisingly, they've been, on the first trial, they've been given misleading information. On trial two, on the other hand, quite a number of children in the arrow condition are already sceptical and they turn to the other cup and they find the, find the object. By trial three, the majority of children and onwards give up faith in arrows. But notice how long it takes them to be sceptical about verbal testimony. They persistently search in the wrong cup and fail to find the sticker. So in other words, we're seeing quite a sharp change from 23 months of age, where the children had some difficulty in acting on this testimony. By now we've got these 36-month-olds and upwards showing all, all too much faith, in a sense. Even when they're given misleading information, they continue to act upon it. 
As children move into the preschool years, you can see them uh, extending this trust, not just in (coughs) object location, but in the existence of all sorts of entities. So we've interviewed children about whether they really think that there are things like germs or oxygen, whether they think there are beings such as God or Santa Claus, and whether they think there are creatures such as mermaids, giants, and so on and so forth. And here's a graph of five- and six-year-olds, and you can see that they're very confident about germs. They're actually not quite so confident about God, uh, and there's a longer story there that I I can't tell you today, but it's a fascinating one. And as you can see, um, they've heard about mermaids. Um, They hear people talk about mermaids, but the particular context in which mermaids are introduced is typically fiction, and I'll pick up that point in a moment when I start talking about the extent to which children are not only listening to testimony, but in some sense parsing the particular genre in which a a claim is made. Okay, so just to summarise this first section then, children come to treat testimony as true, it overrides what they've seen earlier, it's trusted in the face of counter-evidence, it leads to belief in various invisible entities, including germs, Um, And, in fact, what children increasingly do is to defer to other people, to treat other people as trustworthy informants about some hidden reality. Children's questions amplify this theme even more, I think. Here's a study, a very intensive study of four children. Abe, Adam, the Naomi we were introduced to earlier, and uh, Sarah. These children were studied between the ages of two years of age and five, and the researchers would go along every couple of weeks and record them for a couple of hours and then transcribe these utterances. These data were actually collected in the context of looking at children's acquisition of syntax, but more recently they've been put to various uses And we can now look at, so to speak, the the connection to cognitive development as well as language development um, in itself. The figure I want to draw your attention to is this one down here. This is the average number of questions that these children posed in a single hour. Imagine a tutorial where your student asked you 108 questions. So in some sense, it's... It's tough being a caregiver for a two, three, four, or five-year-old. Let's take a closer look at these questions. You can break them up into information-seeking questions or other types where, for example, the child is merely seeking attention or clarification, uh, making a request or seeking permission. And within the information-seeking questions, there are those that are fairly prosaic, asking for the names of things or identity of things, location. But there are those that are a bit more probing in which the child is seeking for explanations. So let's see, what, uh, see how those questions, all those thousands of questions that the children were asking, break down. And here you can see that, I've split them according to percentages, you can see about two-thirds are information-seeking and one-third are other types of questions, attention-seeking, permission, and so on and so forth. Now, if we subdivide the information-seeking questions 
into those that were going after simple facts and those that were going after explanations, you can see that initially very few explanations are sought, but by the time the child is two and a half, um, a reasonable quarter of these questions that are being posed are explanation-seeking. If we now start looking at um, the child's um, cumulative history, so to speak, and we can assume that children are asking upwards of 100 questions, we've seen that 70% are information-seeking, and of those, 25% are explanation-seeking. So let's assume a very conservative estimate that the child spends one hour with some primary caregiver, be it the mother or the father, that means that between two and five years of age, the average child is asking for 40,000 explanations. Clearly, this is an enormously potent engine for cognitive development. And in some sense, this is a conservative estimate because I simply assumed that the child was with a familiar caregiver for one hour per day. And many children, of course, are with, um, if not the primary caregiver, other caregivers um, throughout the day. So this already, I think, feeds into the points I was making earlier. Children assume that there's this sea of information out there. It tells them about worlds that they cannot see, or have not seen, worlds that they perhaps will never see, invisible entities, including deities. And children have this tool at their disposal to gather information about this hidden world and they make very active use of it. I've put this question here, is this uniquely human? Well, it might seem ridiculous to ask if any other species can do it, but in some sense we can tackle that question obliquely because there have been recent efforts to try to get <coughs> chimpanzees, notably bonobo chimpanzees, to engage in some kind of proto-language. And one of the most um, loquacious chimpanzees is a chimpanzee called Kanzi, who can use a keyboard um, to produce utterances and indeed has been tested alongside a three-year-old child for his comprehension of language. And Kanzi is actually rather adroit compared to the three-year-old at following various requests. So if Kanzi is asked to do something quite bizarre. Please put the shoes in the refrigerator. Kanzi will pick up the shoes and carry them to the refrigerator. If you go online, you can see uh, Kanzi's uh, competence in this regard. But if you look at the record, the cumulative record of Kanzi's utterances, and she does use the keyboard to interact with her caregivers a lot, there's no sign of questions. Kanzi Kanzi asks for various treats, asks for various changes, for the door to be opened, to go into another room. But Kanzi doesn't seem to have the sense that language, in the human mode at least, is a device for exchanging information. Now you might say, well, that's of course um, testing the chimpanzee in a domain where uh, they're handicapped since language doesn't come at all naturally. But let's take another look at the issue by looking at imitation, where a lot of investigators were say, in some sense, um, chimpanzees are gifted, and therefore we might expect chimpanzees to look to an expert model for information. So 
before I show you this clip, or it's a slightly, it's a, it's a three-minute film or so, let me just give you some uh, background information. You'll see the chimpanzee presented with a puzzle box. Inside the puzzle box is a reward that the chimpanzee would like. And the human experimenter shows the chimpanzee how to open the box to get the reward, and then it's the chimpanzee's turn. However, in the initial presentation, you'll see that the, the, um, the human experimenter, the model, does something that's overly elaborate. They don't open the box in an efficient way. They touch parts of the box which are um, not necessary to touch before eventually going to the lower compartment and opening that compartment, which is where there is the, re the reward is hidden. So we'll, I'll, show you, um, I'll show you the film and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. I'm sorry this has some rather over-the-top music. Children were predisposed to copy 
children in its enslavement. The root of children's behavior is the fact that they view me as a grown-up, possibly as a teacher. The children expect to be taught is a vital difference. While apes can copy, most researchers believe that they do not teach each other. So the important point um, in that film is, is the last part where the children are given that transparent box and despite the fact that of course their causal understanding of the spatial layout is just as good as the chimpanzees so they too must realize that this tapping on the top is useless they deferentially continue to do this they engage in what's called over-imitation. And this fits into a broader pattern, the broader pattern that I've been trying to identify for you, where the child, unlike the chimpanzee, seems to recognize that there's expertise out there, that other people may know better than you, and that even if you can't make sense of what they're doing, you perhaps should defer and uh, copy them. And there's been interesting speculation that in the course of human history, this apparent stupidity, in some sense, has been very effective because it means that when technology becomes a little bit complicated and when the various twists and turns in the technology are not so transparent to a novice, the novice child, in this case, is not going to say, well, let me short-circuit that and do it my own efficient uh, and simple way. The novice is, in a deferential fashion, going to repeat the various steps somewhat blind, but eventually um, ensure that this more complex technology will get transmitted from one generation to the next. So you do see imitation in chimpanzees, and of course you do see tool use, but the tool use that you see tends to be one generation deep, so to speak. The, the technology is not elaborated in such a way as to create a kind of ratchet effect, which is what we see in the the human record. And the claim is that this over-imitation on the part of children is an important component of having a ratchet effect with respect to technology. And indeed, you could argue beyond technology to all sorts of opaque behaviours, whether they're rituals or cooking practices, um, the use of garments and decoration and so forth. Let me give you one other brief illustration of deference, as I'm calling it. So if you take a look at this hybrid, you can see that it's, it's mostly fish, but it's got a little bit of bird in it. And indeed, if you show children such a creature and ask them what it is, they'll typically go with the bulk of the perceptual evidence, so they'll say, oh, it's a fish. And if you say to them, okay, so where does it live? They'll say, it lives in the water. But you can test another group of children in which you show them this and you say, you know, you're not going to believe this, uh, but this is a bird. And then you can ask the child, so where do you think uh, this lives? And the child will defer and say that this creature lives in a nest. So depending upon the way in which this somewhat ambiguous entity is categorised, children tap into what they take to be the expertise of adults, whereas, as I say, left to their own devices, they would draw different conclusions. 
So just as we saw with the imitation case, it's not that the child is unsophisticated or lacks insight or couldn't come to their own conclusions, but if anything, they've got a superordinate skill which says, don't necessarily go with your own intuitions, um, pay attention to the expert. So if anything, these children are doing precisely what Rousseau would not want them to do, and of course their instructors are doing what Rousseau would not want instructors to do, there is this exchange of information, um, even in cases where in some sense it's difficult for the child to make um, a, a clear causal story stick. Okay. So just to summarise that general theme then, children treat other people as trustworthy informants about hidden reality, and they accept that guidance even if it goes against their own judgment. And so far as we can tell, chimpanzees don't have this deferential inclination. And that's an important species difference which allows for cultural accumulation. And let me turn to the final section in which I talk briefly about children's um, processing of narratives. And here I'm borrowing from Hume again, an interesting remark about the emergence of the art of history or the writing of history where he emphasises that <coughs> before Thucydides there was no real distinction between um, accounts which invoked um, the gods and genuinely historical efforts to, so to speak, get the facts right. So he argues that Thucydides is sensitive to this difference and was in some sense the first historian. Well, thinking about this remark, I wondered if we see a similar development in children's thinking about the narratives that they're confronted with. More specifically, children will be presented with a lot of storybook narratives. Hear, they'll hear family narratives. The, the community will tell them about what has happened in the past, and so the question becomes, among this wide set of testimony, is it the case that the child realises that some of this testimony is about a fictional world and some of this testimony is about what actually happened in the past? So to what extent can children distinguish between people who merely belong in stories and people who are part of history? So we looked at this testing um, three- and four-year-olds and five- and seven-year-olds, and we gave them two boxes. So here was a box where we said we wanted them to put people who were just pretend, and as you can see, this box is whimsically illustrated with a flamingo who's painting. And over here we had a box where the child was asked to put real people, and here's a, a school teacher leaning against a, a blackboard. So we would give the child a picture and uh, <clears throat> we made sure that these pictures were um, identifiable for the children. So here's a picture of Snow White. And we would say, so sh which box should Snow White go in? The box for pretend people or the box for real people? And the child would appropriately put the picture in the right box. Sometimes we would present... Uh, 
real person. It looks as if he's having trouble with his dentures in this picture, at any rate. We would introduce this picture, make sure the picture was familiar to the child, and the child would send it to the real box. So we could basically see whether children had some <coughs> embryonic sensitivity to the f- difference between fictional characters and historical characters. And in a moment I'll just show you a graph where we look at the frequency with which children put any picture into the real box. And of course we would expect them to do that very frequently for these historical characters and very infrequently for these pretend characters. And that's precisely what we see, especially with these um, older children, these five to seven-year-olds, They're putting people like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Martin Luther King, and so on and so forth, systematically into the real box, and Snow White, etc., get assigned to the pretend box. Even the three- and four-year-olds showing some signs of this distinction, but keep in mind that these are all familiar people. So the child might have learned on a relatively rote basis who was real and who was pretend. So in the next... Uh, step, we made the task trickier for the child. We introduced the child to somebody that they had never met before or heard about, and we told the child either a relatively prosaic historical narrative about this person, or we told the child a rather fanciful story about this person, and embedded in the story were various magical (coughs) events. So, for example, we might tell the child a story about a soldier and we would tell the child a story about a story which included magical events or historical events, ditto for the child. So just to give you an illustration, we might say to the child, this is a very brave soldier named John Diamond. He fought in many battles. His special sword kept him from dying in any battle. So here we've got a hint of the magical. Conversely, a different story is more prosaic. This is a very fierce soldier named Bill Gold. He fought in many wars. He died in Virginia when he was fighting in the Civil War. And of course, this soldier should be allocated to the real box. So in this study then, just to be clear, we're not asking the child, do you recognize this person? Are they real or pretend? We're saying, let me tell you something about this person. Let me put this person in a narrative context. And I want you to use the narrative to figure out the status of this person. And here are the findings. The five to seven-year-olds are still doing very, very well. They're using the story to make these judgments the younger children have fallen apart. They can't make this distinction. For them, they're not, as it were, distinguishing among the two, the, between the two genres. In some sense, they're sort of pre-Thucydides. The, the, the capacity of the older children to make this distinction is brought out um, by their justification. So we would say, oh, you put... You put that soldier in the real box. Why did you do that? Or you put that soldier in the pretend box. Why did you do that? And children gave us the following kinds of explanations. 
references to the implausibility of the event or character. So this is from another story in which we had some seeds that made you live forever. Alternatively, references to the relatively prosaic nature of the events she fought in the war, and occasionally we had children who looked at the picture and said, well, this picture, it looks like a real person. That didn't happen. We didn't want that to happen, but some of these children were misled, so to speak, by the, the, the um, photo itself. And then, of course, in this age group, you'll always get some children who will say, just because. Here are the results for the older children. So you can see that when it's the real character, that soldier who fought in an actual war, they refer to those historical events. When it was the soldier with the magic sword, they refer to that implausible event. So this is strong evidence that these children, by the time they're going into school, have carved up, so to speak, the narrative world into two big chunks. On the one hand, the world of fiction, and on the other hand, the world of history. They still face a uh, challenge um, because... If you think about it, there's another chunk of the narrative world which young children will frequently encounter depending upon their upbringing. They'll be presented with religious stories. And in some ways, religious stories are hybrids, of course, because they're often presented to children as historical narratives, but they have got um, magical elements in them. Typically, they have some kind of miraculous event or divine intervention. I'm not going to tell you what we've been finding. I leave it to you to speculate as as to whether children regard religious stories as historical events or fairy tales. Um, But that's the question that we're trying to sort out. So let me just give you an overview then. So I've tried to argue that children, unlike any other species, learn from what other people tell them. They ask thousands of questions. They show this unusual deference, which we might at first um, criticise them for, but seen in the larger sweep of human history, it's probably been important for um, uh, human development. And as I've just explained, um, by the time they go to school, children are also beginning to cope with this um, important distinction between fiction on the one hand and history on the other, but they still face challenges when it comes to uh, dealing with religious claims. And I think that is the end. It is.